tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you can get through the phone, through Drew, just call at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can always email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. No apostrophes, letstalktorah at gmail.com. We are joined in studio by an old friend, Sam Rosenberg, past president of Yad Ezra, Businessman, world traveler, that's pretty fair to say. You could. I mean, you've been to more places than me, and, and I've been to New York and Florida and, and Michigan, and I was born in California, and that's almost it. I've been to more places. Than you've been to a few more places. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get into those. So um, lots of things to talk about today. We've got to talk about the splitting of the Red Sea. Um, we got to talk about the complaints the Jewish people had. we got to discuss what makes a place holy. What makes something holy that whenever you go there, you have to be careful? And what says a place is not holy? We'll talk about that later. We got to talk about the manna, the mun. Uh, maybe we'll get into the well of Miriam. Perhaps if we really have time, we'll get into what's called Jewish Arbor Day, which is next week. Uh, it's a funny word that they call it, but we'll try to talk about it. And of course, in our last segment, we're going to be joined by Jonas and Goldson, as always. Uh, of ethical imperatives. But first things first, Sam, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I am so happy you are here. We had such a great conversation before. But before we get into anything, Torah portion, just let's let everybody know who is Sam Rosenberg. Hmm. I'm a middle-aged entrepreneur who's done a lot of other things in life and proud father of four kids and family man and building a new business. Cool. I guess that will be a start. I will have to pull everything out slowly but surely. Slowly, slowly but surely. But let's, let's, uh, let's get rolling. You'll talk about the Torah portion a little bit. So, so what's happening is the Jewish people have left Egypt. They're leaving Egypt. Last week's Torah portion, Pharaoh threw us out of Egypt. The last plague, the plague of the firstborn, was last week. Pharaoh says, out of my country. And the Jewish people are marching out. They don't leave at night. They leave in the morning. Um, the Egyptians, the verse says, don't even allow the Jewish people to, to let their dough rise. Therefore, we eat unleavened bread, the matzah on Passover. And we are marching out into the desert. We march out. We go. We circle back. God has a circle back towards the Red Sea. Or in the, in the Torah, it's called the Yamsuf. And then there's a fascinating conversation in Pharaoh's palace. Conversation goes like this. You have to imagine this for a second. Um, we've had ten plagues. The Egypt has been decimated. Their firstborn are dead. There's, their crops have been destroyed. And the Jewish people have been sent out officially to sacrifice to God. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has the following conversation with his um, 
servants. He says, why? There's like three days, three or four days after. Why did we let the Jewish people go? Why exactly did we feel it necessary to send them out of our country? What were we thinking? We should go back and get them. I've got to imagine this for a second. And, I, and when I teach it, I, I talk about it. What, was the, what, what are the Egyptians thinking? Like, you don't remember that you threw us out of the country because you were all dying, and now all of a sudden you're, um, you, you can't remember? I mean, it's, that's the language of the verse. Right? Why did we send them out? You ever thought about this? I, I wasn't there, of course, but I did come from Soviet Union. So if you start drawing analogies between what happened to the Jews, obviously in the last 50 years since the migration from the Soviet Union occurred to Israel, and many of us did come here to the United States, or you go back to the turn of the 20th, 18, 19th to 20th century, the 1900s pogroms, and why the Jews leave Eastern Europe at that time, and it happened throughout the history. I mean, we're migrants for all practical purposes. It, it's the same thing. We leave for whatever reasons. History always uh, changes a little bit after it occurs. But, you know, we escaped Soviet Union. Uh, the conditions, one could interpret, were such that we, we were kicked out of the Soviet Union because the conditions were so bad. But we chose to leave. We wanted to leave. And in the time of Moses, did the Jews want to leave or were they kicked out? One can ask that question. Conditions certainly made it very, okay. you know, more likely that we left because we wanted to survive. We wanted to be free people. And we couldn't do that in Egypt, just like we couldn't do it in Soviet Union. Um, now, that's true, but I, I'm asking, and I'm going to get back to what you said sure. because it was fascinating. That's exactly I what I told you was going to happen when we start our conversations. Um, I'm asking not on the side of the Jews what they're thinking on the way out, but we'll get back to that. I'm asking, and in your case, on the side of the Russians. When the Russians, if you want to call it, that you had no choice but to leave, and they made it pretty difficult to stick around, did the Russians wake up uh, six months later and say how foolish we were and let's get those people back? I don't know if they woke up six months later, but certainly they're awake right now, just like Poland is awake right now and trying to figure out what happened to the Jews. The cult, some of the culture is there. It's integrated into their diet. It's integrated into their language, into the speech, into their music. Just like in the Soviet Union, there are so many things that are quasi-Irish. Uh, and there's certainly a loss for the Jews. The largest brain drain in the, in the, in the, planet of, in the history of this planet occurred when millions of Jews left with a at least bachelors, if not postgraduate education and doctors and professors who started economies in Israel and participated in the technological explosion in the United States and in the West. So certainly they're awake. Certainly they're asking, what the hell did we do? And how did it happen that such a valuable part of our culture and population disappeared? And certainly the economy in Russia and the former Soviet Union and most of the former Soviet republics were not positively affected by our exodus, exodus of an entire society that valued education and culture and family unit and all, all the wonderful values that we as people have and shared with the societies we were part of all of a sudden disappeared. I'm sure they're aware of our losses right now. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, but I have a feeling the pharaoh, I mean, these were his slaves, and we did walk out with a lot of their money. So 
really, really, um, God put this thought in their head. It's not normal. In other words, if you would have left Russia after wiping out a percentage of their population, they would say, good riddance, just don't come back. We need to get rid of you. You're a bunch of te- if you were to say to be a bunch of terrorists, whatever, as an example. The Pharaoh should have looked at us and said, good riddance. You destroyed my country. Get out. Don't come back. I don't want to deal with your God anymore. And let me rebuild my country. But God had other plans. See, there's a fascinating um, concept. In Hebrew, it's called measure for measure, or in, it's mida keneged mida, meaning whenever God punishes, it's, a, it's an exact punishment. In other words, I'm a teacher. So if a student's misbehaving, I can't give a punishment that fits the crime. I have to do something so the child will behave and not disturb the class. But it doesn't have to be, it doesn't, it's not a punishment that fits the crime. The same thing even the American uh, judicial system. We have to get criminals off the street. Doesn't mean that the punishment fits the crime. But God always punishes measure for measure. So the Egyptians way back when, 86 years earlier as a matter of fact, were throwing Jewish babies in the water. The reason for that was they wanted to either destroy the Jewish people, make sure Moses wasn't born. There's a few different um, possibilities. The reason they chose drowning them in water was because when they had their, their group have a conversation, famous people who were in that conversation, Jethro was in that conversation, the famous Bill was in that conversation. So they said, how should we try to kill the Jews? We don't want God. We know that God punishes measure for measure. Let's be smarter than God. Let's do something that he can't punish us back. So they said, we're going to drown the babies. God promised Noah he'll never bring a flood to the world. We are safe. God can't punish us. That was their thoughts. Now, in truth, it was a mistake because God said, I won't flood the whole world. But God says, I'll play with your rules. You say, I can't bring a flood and I can't punish you measure for measure. Let's watch. I'm going to convince you to chase the Jewish people. You on your own, either because of your stubbornness or um, sometimes you know how to push people's buttons, you are going to chase the Jewish people into the Red Sea. I'm going to split it open. Your army will come through, and then the waters will come down. So you're going to get punished by drowning. And I, God, didn't, uh, and I played with your rules. So therefore, the Pharaoh has to be convinced somehow to chase us. Because if he doesn't chase us, then he won't get to the Red Sea. If he doesn't get to the Red Sea, then God can't do his punishment of measure for measure. That's, that's part one. But I wanted to go back on something else you said very interesting. What were we thinking when we left? What was the plan? What did we become when we left? When we left Egypt, we became God's nation. Now, it's, a, it's actually a four-part or five-part plan. We have to first start stop the hard work. Then we have to be freed from Egypt. Then we have to go through the Red Sea and destroy the Egyptians. And then we're going to accept the Torah on Mount Sinai. And now we're God's nation. So our thought process was not just we didn't like the situation. What was supposed to be our plan, whether we understood or not, is that we wanted or should have wanted, but we were becoming God's nation through accepting the Torah. Okay, now that I got through that, you wrote so many notes down. What did you write? No, no, I mean... We're, you were talking about the, what, is it the sense of pride or the sense of loss 
that the Pharaoh experienced and why he chased the Jews through the desert? You know, or is it the sense of loss for all this human labor force that, that all of a sudden left and now we have to you know, build our own temples and do our own manual labor and everything else? Whatever the reason was, sounds like a God strategy uh, to, to, to lure the Egyptians into the water. Interesting. So let's now. I want to take it a an interesting step further. The beginning of the Torah portion talks about that Moses is looking for Joseph's bones. One of the twelve tribes is Joseph. Joseph was the one that became the ruler in Egypt. And when he dies, he tells the Jewish people, he says, "You can't leave without my bones. You got to take my bones out of here. I want to be buried in the land of Israel." So. On the way out, Moses is busy looking for Joseph's bones. Seems all the other tribes, they were in an easier place for the tribe to take out with them. The, the Medrash says Joseph's bones were in a metal casket dropped to the bottom of the Nile River. That was if the Egyptians knew that uh, we can't leave without Joseph's bones, you know, there's no scuba divers, right? Drop, drop his casket to the bottom of the river. It'll get covered over. And 100 years from now, you'll never find it. So there was actually a person alive who told Moses, it's right there. And the, the Talmud continues, he took a gold plate and he wrote something on it, it's debatable what he wrote on it, and miraculously the casket comes up and the Jewish people take that casket out when they pack out of, of Egypt. So, um, so what did I want to discuss over here? All, right, all these things. Okay, so here we go. So we get to, we get to the Red Sea. It doesn't just split. And as we imagine that Moses waves his stick and the sea just parts. That's not what happened. God said something very fascinating. People in business probably appreciate this. And that is, you know, go back. I must have read one of these cute little quips this morning. You know, if you believe it, it will happen. And, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm sure you have words for it. Motivational stuff. So I wrote back. I said, you know, the motivation is nice, but if you put your feet up on the desk, right, it's not happening, right? It doesn't matter how much you want it. So God told Moses. Moses starts to pray. God split the Red Sea. So God says to Moses, now is not the time for prayer. Usually the Jewish people will be saved by prayer. But now is the time for action. You don't have too many merits um, in your bag that the sea should split for you. So you're going to have to show your belief in God. So first march into the water. After you march into the water, then I'll split the sea. So they do. They're one person from the tribe of Judah, a whole tribe of Benjamin. We march in, and then the miracles begin. Twelve tunnels. The floor raises up, a beautiful marble floor. You could see from one tunnel to another. There's all kinds of beautiful stories of going through these tunnels. So the Jewish people marching through was actually covered tunnels. So the Jewish people are marching through and the Egyptians are following, but they can't reach us. The reason is because we were protected by clouds. Now what happens is normally we followed a cloud through the desert and it uh, took care of anything in the way, but God says, you got to make the first step. <laughs> following a cloud is not called making the first step. So the cloud goes behind the Jewish people, separates the Egyptian army and the Jewish people. So the Egyptians can't get through the cloud. But it seems they could see us. So we're marching in. We're marching in. 
the cloud is behind us. The Egyptians are now following. So now everybody's in the Red Sea. And I was talking with somebody this week. When we talk miracles, right, we, we sometimes get confused. We think the miracle has to be the same for everybody. Everybody's in the same situation. If God made the, the floor rock hard, it's rock hard for everybody. If God made the fruit trees grow in there, there's got to be fruit trees for everybody. But that's not how miracles work. The Jewish people are walking through. Life is fantastic. You couldn't have a better, you know, forget the roads of Michigan, right? You couldn't have a better way of getting through. But the Egyptians are suffering on the way through. All of a sudden, it's not rock hard floor. All of a sudden, it's boiling mud. All of a sudden, and the Torah says this, their chariot wheels are getting burned off. Their horses are getting dragged. There's a lot of noise. And what's fascinating is they're so confused. And again, this, the verse says this. They're going the wrong way. In other words, at some point you should figure out that it's time to get out. But they do not figure out it's time to get out. They file in. The Jewish people get out. Once the Jewish people are out, the Egyptian army is in. God will tell Moses, wave your stick. Not Harry Potter. Wave your stick. And the, 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 the sea comes crashing down. And again, it's an interesting point in my few seconds left. They didn't all die the same. If you were a righteous Egyptian, whatever that means, um, you died faster. If you were a wicked Egyptian, it was going to be more torturous. And what's interesting is, and I don't know if we have time for it now, um, the sea spit them all out. So the Jewish people shouldn't think that we came out on one end and they came out on the other end. And there goes our music. So we finished our first segment already. And I need to take some time to find out more about my friend Sam. So we're going to talk more. Hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on New Radio Media. And we'll be right back. What's going on in your neighborhood? They say it takes a village. It's the simple things. The things that are a testament to the old. The things that are a testament to the new. Know what's going on in your community. Check out our community channel on newradiomedia.com. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Surfing the Internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. 
So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. Let us turn our thoughts today to Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us And we're back! And I, I can't go away from what we were talking during the break. Um, so you were telling me, Sam, we're talking about measure for measure. But you said God does measure for measure. But what do we do? We do what's, what we consider effective. And so it's quite often it's not measure for measure. We either overreact, underreact, uh, react inappropriately, whatever, in the effort for the punishment to be effective. Right, it's, a very, it's a very interesting, just a nuance, right? And we're not trying to punish measure for measure. We're not God. I can't look into your mind and see how much you're suffering and how much the punishment works and what were you thinking when you did something wrong. I tell my class all the time, the, the concept of repentance by the high holidays is only God could do that. And as if you walked into a court of law after robbing a bank and you told the judge you were very sorry, he'd say, I'm glad to hear that. And now you're going to be in jail for 10 years. And he'll say, but your honor, I'm really sorry. I really won't do it again. And the judge will say, of course, you're not going to do it again because you're going to be in jail now because you must be punished. If we don't have punishments, then the, then the world will be just wild. So that's a very, very interesting thought. But, I, but a little bit we got to talk. We're talking about Egypt over here. Egypt going into the desert. So I know you're a world traveler, and I know you've been all over the place. You have in Egypt? Not Egypt, Jordan. But Jordan. Egypt. Well, I just had to ask this question. Why do you like traveling? Oh, too hard of a question. <laughs> That's a difficult question. I don't know if there is enough time in the show to answer it. Primarily, I love to see other cultures, other people. It's, it's really the people thing. I, I, I don't care much about architecture or art or, or, or historic sites and things of that nature, but I love to see how people who are the same genetically mostly like us, how different their lives are. Everything from their dyes to the way they express themselves, the way they commingle, the way they react with each other, with strangers. That's why I like it. And do you think, I mean I should know the answer to this, but, but do you think that if different, if different cultures understood um, how and why people react, the world might be a better place? I don't know if it's a matter of understanding or tolerance, or do normally they go hand in hand. I think if people learn how to understand and then tolerate and then actually appreciate each other's differences and realize that the differences are very superficial for most part, we all, you know, like life. We all want to do what's best for us, what's best for our kids for most part. Uh, I think certainly life in the world would be much more peaceful, idealistic. And, and, but people are people, and we're always going to have pride and prejudice and. and Envy and you know competition for limited resources or what we think are limited resources, and therefore uh, we put blinders on, and there's less peace and harmony in the world than we would love it to see. See, that was a song I played coming in. You got to go back and listen to that song. That's no problem. But I like what you said about children. But we're going to get to children later. So I wanted to um, to take it a little further. And, uh, and, what was, and I tell you, we're going to talk about holy places. So we go through, the, we go through the, the Red Sea, 
and the Egyptian army is destroyed, and the sea spits them out, so all the previous slaves can see that, um, that their owners are dead. Because even, even in Civil War times, before or after, the, the slaves that escaped to the north were always petrified that their master would come get them. And it's a very big slave mentality. You know, it's just don't go back. Just fight with him. It, it's, it, it's part of the psyche of a slave that you listen to the master for the most part. So they were petrified that the master's going to come back after them. What are you afraid of? He's one guy, you're one guy, just go beat him up. Like, get a few friends. The, the psyche doesn't work that way. So the Jewish people had to see the Egyptians dead. So as in our psyche, we're not worried that somebody's coming after us. We're escaped slaves. We've been slaves for a very long time. So, um, so we actually sing a special song this week. Uh, the, the actual Shabbos is referred to as uh, Shabbos Shira, the Sabbath of song. We'll talk about that maybe. But... Um, What's interesting is it says that a maidservant, the lowest, I guess, job that any Jews would have, I guess you'd be a maidservant to a maidservant, I guess. Um, the lowest one had a better recognition of God than one of the greatest prophets in history by the name of Ezekiel. So they saw God clearer in a more clear fashion than he would ever manage to recognize God. So they saw God. God's presence was right here by the Red Sea. So, uh, you know, they're, they're busy. There's other things happening, collecting gold and silver, but they didn't want to leave. The Jewish people did not want to leave the Red Sea. They said, we saw God here. God's presence was here. Why would I want to leave? This is a very holy area. So it says God took his presence and he moved it um, into the desert. And Moses had to actually force us to leave. So what's the deal? So there's a, I tell you, we got to about holiness and holy places. And this is the difference between the Jewish religion, and I would venture to say any other religion, but I can't speak for the how, whoever knows how many religions there are out there. But, um, you know, at a time, um, I, I know Christians, they do it, the Arabs also do it. They'll have an area where they claim, or maybe a miracle did take place, and it becomes a holy place. A miracle happened here, this place is holy. The Jewish people, that's not the rule. If God's presence is here, it's holy. God's presence leaves, it's uh, just a regular sea, go swim. God's presence was on Mount Sinai. When his presence is there, holy, you can't touch that mountain. You'll a death penalty. But as soon as God's presence leaves, just go feed your animals on the mountain. It's just another mountain. I mean, it's a tourist attraction, fine. The exception becomes um, the Western Wall and the Temple Mount. Because God's presence is still there, maybe on a very low level, we don't deserve a higher level of God's presence, but God's presence is there. That's what, by, but in the Jewish religion, a place being holy is dependent on God's presence. The same thing, by the way, in synagogue, in temple, it says if there's 10 men praying, 10 men praying, so now it's holy, God's presence will come down. God's presence is here. So that gives it a holiness. I don't know if it's temporary or all the time. There's a lot of rules and regulations how you have to act in a temple, in a synagogue, all kinds of rules just to show, like, respect, right? But I know of other religions um, that that's not the deal. Miracle happens, it's a holy place. So a very interesting difference between religions. And as a world traveler, go ahead. 
but is it really true? If we consider the Western Wall Kotel to be holy, after two thousand, let's say two thousand years after the Temple's destruction, what makes it so special as compared to if God's presence for Christian faith was by some miracle attributed to some saint? And even though that miracle occurred hundreds of years ago, the saint is long gone, whatever, what makes us determine that that place is different for, for that particular faith than the wall is for us? Right. So you can ask the Christian. Um, maybe somebody here knows the answer. I have no idea. I don't think anybody's, I don't think a, a Christian would tell you that God's presence or the, or the saint's presence is still there. They'll say a miracle took place here. They have those paintings that there, there were tears on it or whatever, Right. They don't claim that God's presence. Tony, am I clueless? I I think you're you're actually onto something with this. You're right. It's not so much like a claim that God like. I was let's say a miracle <laughs> happened here, right? Yeah. So the miracle happened. So if there was a miracle, so let's assume that there was God's presence during the miracle. But now that the miracle is done, I don't care five minutes ago, five hours ago, five hundred years ago. Now that the miracle is done. So God's presence is not there. Am I getting this pretty? Yeah, pretty I believe good? I believe it's still viewed as sort of an important. Um, it's important, but it's not. It's not seen as like God's presence is there at right. You know, after. Hey, right, Sam. Know, there we have it. We it, we got yeah. the expert here, or at least they went to school. They're supposed to know something. <laughs> but, but the visitors to that place, they feel closer to God by visiting that place. Exactly, it, and because it changes their spiritual. That's fine, but that's not a, that's not a question. To, yeah, but that's not a holiness question. That's that's an inspiration. In other words, something here special happened. I believe I choose to believe that story, so I am now inspired. But I don't I don't think they walk around saying I felt God's presence. I, it could be wrong. Oh, okay, yeah, I got my I got my I got my, I got my fingers. Okay, good, paying attention. I just think it's the same feeling that I get when I visit the hotel. I don't feel necessarily God's presence. I feel that I'm closer to God because of all the history and all what occurred at this location going back 2,000, 3,800 years, whatever the first temple. I right, and I, I'll tell you, I don't know if I feel any special presence of God when I go to the, to the Kotel, to the Western Wall either. Correct. Except that the rabbis tell us okay. that God's presence is there. So I don't, I, I'm willing to agree and admit I don't feel it. But I'm not allowed to go on the Temple Mount... As a Jew, because God's presence is there, and I am not pure enough, that's a conversation for another day, to be allowed to go on the Temple Mount. So in other words, in the, in the understanding of holy places for Jewish people, for Jewish religion, is a better phrase, um, holy means God's presence is there, and if, it's, if God's presence is not there, it's not holy. Words, I'm allowed to walk on top of Mount Sinai. If I go to, the, if I knew the location of where the crossing of the Red Sea was, I would make a blessing. There's, there's been something amazing here that happened historically. That's true, and I, and I definitely recognize that fact. And I happen to, unlike yourself, I like to see where history took place. And it, you know, I, oh, I study this, and this makes sense, and I get this. I like that, but it's not holy. That's, I think, the, and as no one's arguing on the claim, it's just. What makes something holy? What makes something not holy? If God's presence is there, now we say it's holy. God's presence is not there. It's an important historical site. There's, maybe I can even make a blessing there sometimes because of what it is. But, um, but it's not holy. 
it doesn't require you to act, to be any any different. That's right. And my screen is blank, but my music is playing. There we go. So we're already through two segments. Hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on New Radio Media. And we'll be right back. The latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. It's all about you, and that's the way we like it. Where you're going. What you do to stay fit. What you're eating what you're thinking, and how you're feeling. Join the conversation at NewRadioMedia.com's Lifestyles channel. Stream the life you want to live. It's not science fiction, it's science fact. Tiny robots crawling through your body helping doctors to identify disease and perform operations. The tools are known as snakebots and they carry tiny cameras, scissors, and forceps. For now, these snakebots have to be controlled by humans and they remain attached to tethers. But we're not far from the day when the machines will cut the tether for good and be allowed to roam your body on their own in damaged organs. Now already the tethered snakebots have proven extremely useful and they make it possible to conduct previously invasive surgery in ways that were never thought possible just a few years ago. So imagine, for example, a heart bypass operation that does not require a major incision in your chest and the opening up of your ribcage. Now these things are being made possible today and will in the not too distant future become the rule rather than the exception when it comes to major surgeries. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Brackman. And we are bound together in our desire to see the world become a place in which our children can... And we're back! Uh, Sam, so much to talk about. You're going to have to come back. We're having conversations here. Am uh, I a couple of minutes in our next segment? Not going to happen. But I did want to bring up, we talked children before. And you have four children. You have two twins who are in seventh grade. Correct. And they're in Hillel, Hillel Day School here in, is it called Southfield? I don't know if it qualifies. No, it's Farmington Hills. Qualifies Farmington Hills, really right around the corner from the studio. And uh, we were discussing um, a little bit just to, I, I want people to have a picture of, first of all, why did you send them to Hillel? And what would you like them to do, right? Obviously, in eighth grade, they may, you know, raise their own flags and, uh, and march and say what they're planning on doing. But... Why did you choose to send your children to Hill Day School, and what what are you hoping their future plans are? Well, both my wife and I believed that it was very important for them to gain a Jewish identity. Uh, we got ours in Soviet Union. That's and your wife also, right? My wife also. She came here from St. Petersburg or Leningrad at the time. I came from Western Ukraine. Uh, we had it was. Both cities were in Soviet Union. However, the lifestyle and the culture in both places was significantly different. One thing we did have in common that we did experience some level of anti-Semitism. And no matter how terrible we think it was, uh, everything has two sides. And 
it did teach us and, and uh, allowed us to have what we call Jewish identity. Um, it seems like everyone else knew we were Jewish. And inadvertently, we learned the, fa the same fact. So we were proud of it. Uh, we experienced a lot of negativity as a result of that. But there was no question in our own mind who we were. Uh, our kids growing up in the United States wouldn't have the same luxury of anti-Semitism to be taught that they're Jewish. What I mean, it's interesting. Just to, and I'm interrupting you, but it almost sounds like, and I'm and I'm actually in agreement with this, that anti-Semitism has a good purpose. Hardship in general. What you know, I always tell it to my kids: what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. So hardship in general can be viewed as a negative, or it could be explored as a positive. You know, with every difficult challenge in life, one should look at it as an opportunity to excel, to make themselves stronger, smarter, wiser, whatever the case may be. So, you know, we could not recreate the environment in the United States in which my wife and I grew up. I don't think you would want to, but okay. We wouldn't want to, first of all. Uh, we, we treasure what the United States has to offer, and taking it away from the kids or adding some negativity to it would be silly. Uh, so... You know, despite that neither we were both quite secular, I was a little more religion than my, religious than my wife, but we would still certainly consider ourselves secular Jews. Um, we decided that gaining a Jewish education would give them enough of a head start to, ident to help them identify themselves and further develop other relationships and continue developing, even, you know, as they grow, to to really understand that they're Jews, make the best of it, learn to the extent they want to learn, and have enough basis. Currently, I, I take pleasure in watching my kids speak Hebrew, something I never learned to do despite a dozen or so trips to Israel. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm very proud of their accomplishments, and, and they have a Jewish spin to them, something I didn't have growing up. And uh, so do, you, do you get more... Jewish feeling, more Jewish knowledge through your children? Of course. I get nachas. I mean, the fact that That's I can use word. the word nachas uh, from watching my kids develop as Jewish Americans or American Jews, uh, both, is, is, it's a great pleasure. I see them studying at Hillel, the American government, the, the civics, you know, going, preparing for a Washington trip and things of that nature from, with a, you know, from a Jewish perspective. And, and it's still 100% American patriotic nationalist view of the United States with a Jewish spin to it, which is wonderful. Uh, I wish I had it when I was a kid growing up. I'm glad they do. So do you think um, eight years of elementary school will give them as strong a Jewish feeling as what you had because of anti-Semitism? I think it's already stronger. Uh, really? I, I, I think it's you know it's already eight years because of pre-K or K or whatever okay, it fine. is before the eight, first eight nine ten. But it, it's not a matter of time. It's you know it's not just a matter of time. It's a matter of uh, focus. It's a matter of what kind of a you know is it a pleasant learning experience or is it a, you know an unpleasant learning experience? So I think it, it, they will have enough. Uh, Judaism will be grounded enough in their identity. For them to continue it on their own, at their own pace, at their own comfort level, and I, I, I trust and I believe that they will be great people who happen to be Jews. Okay, that, that's the answer. Now, in high school, do you have plans, wishes, desires for them? Oh, of course. I want them to. Accept, uh, 
I always tell the kids, you know, if it's less than 100, it means lose room for improvement. <laughs> and if you only got 100 on your test, it means you didn't do the extra credit. Uh, so I, I want the school that will challenge them. I want the school that will teach them appropriate values. And I want a school in which they feel that they accomplish the best that they're capable of. Yeah, you're putting in two different things. You're putting in values and education. They don't always go exactly hand in hand. In mm, other words, would you, would you look uh, at what, what should be, and as you like to say, reality are usually different things. In other words, would you believe that a public school could give them, not the education, there are good public schools around, but would you believe it could give them the values that you believe in? First of all, my values that uh, the values are prioritized. So not every value I have, I want my kids to inherit. So okay. uh, I'm a very right-wing conservative. It doesn't mean that there is no views for liberalism in the world, and you know I'm very tolerant and appreciative of differences. Actually, uh, I'm a product of my own environment. My kids will not be. Uh, so, uh, I, unfortunately, there are some things that are absolute in nature, and I believe the public school will. The kids would have a very difficult time reconciling what they're learning and what, more importantly what they're not learning in public schools to what is appreciated at home. So, and so that reconciliation, I think they could deal with it, but it wouldn't be pleasant and it wouldn't be easy for them. So that's one of the reasons public schools, it's not the education. I mean, if you navigate the waters of public schools, there's enough resources for you to excel in math and sciences and arts and literature and all that other stuff. But you're right, the value system is challenging, although the whole idea of to toler tolerating differences is something that you want to teach your kids. Uh, but do you want to risk that to go astray, to go the wrong way? So I, I wish I could send my kids to public school. But I don't know if it's practical. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay, very good. Thank you for being straight. I like it. And once we're talking about, right, we talk about the kids, um, you were past president of Yad Ezra, right? A couple of years ago? Um, I'm the past, past president. Past, right. past president. So Yad Ezra is a, is a food bank, and um, you got involved. Um, why did you get involved? Well, first of all, it's a food pantry. It's a semant okay, when I say semantics. Food, right, that's right. okay. We, we, give, uh, we provide food for needy individuals and families, not to other organizations. Uh, why did I get involved? Well, I wanted to give back to the community. And a friend of mine who was a guest on this show, Neil Zelenko, somehow put my name in the thing <laughs> about, Good uh, uh, on the list 16 years ago or 14 years ago. I got invited. I participated. I really fell in love with the organization. I was involved with it on a volunteer basis at its inception. Um, but as I got involved in it, I realized the reason I never got involved in, in serving the community is because of my post-Soviet hang-up of skepticism against anything that's organized. Whether it's religion, whether it's government, whatever, you just don't trust or anything organized. Every, you know, theoretically, all these organizations, be it government or religious or nonprofits, are there to serve themselves. Community is secondhand. And when, and when, when I got involved with it, I realized that that, that, that was my hang-up. That wasn't the reality. It was the, my own perception based on years of listening to propaganda and being very skeptical about it and then perceiving everything I hear as propaganda. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, many of the Soviet immigrants still follow that, that skepticism in their lives. 
Uh, and when I joined the Adesra and I saw the, the, the community effort that, that supported people like myself and my grandmother that benefited from these type of organizations, I, I did everything I possibly could to make it better or at least to support it to whatever extent they could. Uh, it taught me a lot, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I felt it made a difference. And I continued in it, and I showed up to meetings, and I guess as long as you show up to meetings and you speak your mind, eventually they'll make you a president. And well, that's about the speaking your mind part, but showing up to meetings definitely will help you get in line to be a president of an organization. Right. That is, that's amazing. It's amazing that you can admit that that you had hang-ups that you were able to get rid of. I'm still working on it. You're still working on yeah. it. So well, once we're on the topic, so what would you tell, again, it doesn't have to be specifically at Israel. Obviously, I'm involved in a, in a school. Um, what would you tell people about getting involved, volunteering in the community? It doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be... What's your feeling when you see other people that are not involved in anything... What do you want to tell them why they should get involved? There was a, a principal of my school, the high school I went to. He, all, he, he had a saying, there's three Ps in life. You have to pray, you have to pay, and in his case, he said, instead of participate, he said, pull the trigger. So you have to fight for what you believe. And you have to you know, pray, and you have to pay, participate with donations and whatever to be a member of the society. I think that Really, in order to be a member of the society, whatever society you're a part of, in order to be a complete member, you have to do those things. So I think if we're a great family people and we're great professionals and we're doing whatever, if we're not doing something to, for the community outside of all that, we're missing a piece of ourselves. We're limiting ourselves. It's sort of like, you know, I don't exercise. Or a person says, well, I think I can be healthy without exercising. True, but you're missing something. Maybe you should exercise a little. I don't participate in the community. You should. Uh, because you don't know what you're missing. That's the only thing I can tell. That might actually be a way to help people out because it would be amazing. I mean, look, there's so many organizations and they, they need volunteers. And there's so many people that could help. And sometimes selfish reasons. Sometimes they think they have good reasons, but there's so many organizations out there, your kids' school, anything relatives benefit from. Go, go out there. You, you, it'll change your life. You will, you will become a, I mean, I believe, you'll become a better person. Agreed. Your life is fuller, your life is richer, and you feel good when you help other people. There's nothing to talk about in my minute and a half once we're talking about food. So in this week's story <laughs> portion, there's the famous... The manna, the manna from heaven. The, we're in the desert for 40 years. Right now, we've been in the desert for a month. right? And we got no food. There's no food supply for millions of people in the middle of a desert. So God is going to send this manna from heaven that they have to collect every day. But this manna is going to test their metal because you can't save any. Try to imagine... Most of us can't. Right? The kids go, oh, man, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to eat. Pantries are full. There's nothing that you want to eat. But there's always food there. But by the manna, you had to finish your supply daily. That way you knew that you were relying on God tomorrow because I don't got no food now. So I want to eat tomorrow. God's going to have to send me my manna. And that manna came down 
every day except on Saturday, except on Sabbath. On the Sabbath, on Friday, it fell down double because they weren't going to go out and collect it on, on the Sabbath. So the the money comes down every day for the next forty years. Well, minus a month because where we are on the calendar, but uh, yeah, for forty years. I mean, you wouldn't need Yad Ezra in that case. You probably need a lot of things. Oh, and here comes my music. And we are through three segments. And we have Jonas and Goldson of Ethical Imperatives coming up next. So please hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on New Radio Media. And we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a five-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Walled Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. A gelling agent used in making jams and jelly may have anti-cancer properties. Now, anyone who's ever made jams or jellies is familiar with the ingredient known as pectin, which is a natural fiber product found in most fruits and vegetables. A group from the Institute of Food Research in the United Kingdom found that under the right conditions, pectin releases a molecular fragment that binds with a protein that inhibits cancer growth. And the thing that may make jam and jelly more effective is slowing the growth of cancer than raw pectin is the process used to modify it for use in jams and jellies. You see, it turns out that the modification helps to emphasize the release of the cancer-fighting fragment, which is known as Galactin-3. The most commercially available pectin comes from the peel or citrus fruits and apple pulp that is processed before its sale. So for now, no one knows if pectin found in unprocessed fruits and vegetables has the same cancer-fighting qualities. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. You know, it's just too bad during the break. You can't listen to our conversations and it's not recorded. That's just too bad. But before I get back, Sam said something fantastic. But before I get back, we are joined by Rabbi Jonas and Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Jonas, how are you today? I am very well, Ripsby. How are you? Good. Are you ready? I don't know what your weather is going to be like over the weekend. Ours will be a little colder. Yeah, well, it's supposed to hit here, too, but what can we do? We can actually enjoy it. I like snow. But in <laughs> any case, um, as always, the clock is ticking. Go for it. All right. Well, the headlines in Michigan have made it all the way here to St. Louis. The Broadway hit Hamilton is coming to Detroit this spring. But you better be prepared to spend a lot of money and pull a lot of strings if you want to see it. Since the musical opened in 2015, it's been sold out wherever it goes. In part, that's because the story of American founding father Alexander Hamilton is so compelling. An orphan from the West Indies, he became one of the architects of the United States Constitution and the founder of the American financial system. It's fair to say that the United States might never have survived as a nation without the contributions of Alexander Hamilton. 
but his story has been around for a long time. So why all of a sudden have we remembered Hamilton as an American hero? The answer is simple. Music. Where words and ideas express the workings of the mind, music finds its way into the deepest recesses of the heart. When words and music join, when, the, when, when, when words and music join the mind and the heart in perfect harmony, the result is nothing less than transcendent. When the Jews went forth from Egypt, they had seen the systematic destruction of the greatest nation on earth, a nation that had oppressed them for generations. When God split the sea so they could escape Pharaoh's chariots, they saw that God not only punishes the wicked, but suspends the laws of nature to save those he loves. And when they emerged back on dry land, victorious and free, they couldn't wait a moment before offering expression of gratitude and faith, but mere words would not do. They had to sing. Our minds and hearts are often in conflict. Our intellects and our emotions are not natural collaborators. But that's why we exist, to resolve the contradictions of the head and the heart, of the spirit and the body, of the physical world and the world to come. There are few expressions of poetry more inspiring than those found in Jewish literature. In, excuse me, in liter Jewish liturgy. We can't study them without being inspired by them. And when we set them to song, they transport us to a higher plane. There is no better recipe for having a very good Shabbos. Yadison, thank you as always, and have a great Shabbos. All the best. All right, be well. Now, really, at this time, Sam, we usually put up a poster. But give me a second, Kelsey. You can put it up soon. Um, I got to go back to what we discussed before. So we're talking at Ezra, right? Food pantry. We're talking mana. And you said a great line. Could you say it again? Is yet Ezra that mana that God provided in the desert? In the desert, we couldn't help ourselves. Now we have a community that could help our, those in need. And what we do is really the same thing that God's mission was to provide for sustenance for those that couldn't do it on their own. And to, to, are we perfect at it? Not. But that's the way community supports itself. Yeah, it's just such a, 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 a great attitude to look at it because, yes, when you help somebody who needs, it doesn't matter what the need is, but in this example it happens to be food, right? So as far as the person receiving... It's money from God. God's providing him. So I'm the messenger of God. That's fine. So in the desert, we couldn't have any messengers. It wasn't going to work. I mean, I guess it could have, but it, it was not done that way. But now that same money, those people that need, um, so an organization like Yadez or any other food pantry for that example, becomes the, 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 the conduit, the messenger, to make sure that God is sending that Food. I think it's fantastic. I, I, the whole thought is just fantastic. As my time is ticking, Kelsey, you ready? We got our poster. Hopefully that's poster number nine. I forgot to check, but Kelsey always gets it, right? So every week we say, we put up a letter. It's, you can see it's right behind me. See? Right? Okay, don't look too hard. Um, you have to look later. Um, in any case, we're up to the ninth letter. The letter is Tess or Tet. It's, uh, it's almost like a fish hook, I guess, if you look at it. Um, there's not too many words in the Jewish language that actually begin with that letter. It's just one of those rare letters. It's like finding a word that begins with an X. I mean, there's certain letters that don't do too well. Um, but actually, there is a word, Tavah. Tavah means to dip. So the reason I thought of it this week is by the Passover Seder, what we do is, when we mention the plagues, we take our finger, or some people spell and we take a drop of wine out. 
for each plague because the Egyptians are suffering. Good, we have to be free. But there are people suffering. And when people are suffering, we have to have that in mind. So we spill out a little bit to be symbolic of that fact that there are people suffering, we have to have it in mind. And my time is really ticking, but I wanted to leave you this great story. So um, uh, I wonder what names I gave. Yeah, Marty and his wife hadn't spoken um, for a week. They were not on speaking terms, something hopefully most of us don't relate to. And uh, each one doesn't want to give in, you know? I'm not giving in. And, uh uh-oh, my time is going fast. So here we go. So Marty leaves a note for his wife. I have a fishing trip tomorrow morning. Please wake me up at 5.30. The alarm doesn't wake me up. Uh, Next morning, he wakes up at 9 o'clock, misses the fishing trip, and next to his pillow is a note that says, it's 5.30, wake up. Right? So um, sometimes we have to make sure to listen to people and not just decide what they meant us, what, 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 what was meant to be said. We got to open up our minds, open up our ears, sit quietly sometimes and listen. We started talking about stories earlier today. Um, certainly we got all kinds of stories from Sam. We got to open up and listen. When we listen, we learn amazing things. And But my time is just about up. So lots of thank yous as always. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. I couldn't do without you. Big team here today. Tony, Kelsey, Drew, Angel. Zach is sitting in. Certainly tremendous thanks to Sam. We're going to do this again. Hmm. Yeah, I got to laugh. I'm not sure if that's a yes or no. I'll take that as a yes. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi. You've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. Until next week, don't forget to think about it. And though the body sleeps, the heart